HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every you know, Tuesday from roughly at 12 to like 12.45, 1 o'clock from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Bro- Brooklyn. Joined, as usual, with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? Good. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Doing all right? Yep. Got uh, Dave in the booth. Hello. How you doing? Good. How about you? Uh, I'm, I'm doing well, and I'm happy that uh, even though this has been another... A uh, terrible week in the United States of America. I'm glad to say, uh, you know, I have some friends here today, so hopefully we'll have a good discussion that is, you know, not about the horrible things that are happening outside of our little container box studio. Uh, I'm joined today uh, by uh, Mandy Aftel and Daniel Patterson. Uh, Mandy is the world-renowned perfumer. Is that the correct term? Yes. Perfumer par excellence who's... Uh, who's kind of, oh, if, if, if a human has a main thrust to their life, it's that uh, she is interested in uh, fragrances that are derived naturally, sourcing them, finding them, collecting them, compounding them, using them, thinking about them, writing about them. Yes or no? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Uh, and Now, Daniel's a little more difficult to kind <laughs> of, because, uh, you know, being in the you know food world myself, I know how everyone hates to be kind of boxed in, but I will say that uh, you know uh, I guess I first had your food at Qua like a, a billion years ago, and then at Qua again like a you know half a billion years ago. Uh, but you know Daniel's always struck me as very uh, he's one of the thoughtful chefs, so he's one of the kind of uh, you know um, that generation of chefs that just really. Um, to, to the advantage of the food, I would say, uh, is just very thoughtful about kind of what he does, how he does it, why he why he does it, why he uses what he, what he uses. Also, 
uh, a serious control freak. I'll tell you guys a little story from Qua. Daniel was actually, uh, he was like, so Nastasi and I were on a massive citrus tasting. I think it was a citrus tasting, right, Stas? Or was it the Merle Haggard? It was, it was Merle Haggard, Merle I think. Haggard, yeah. It was Merle Haggard. We were going uh, back when Merle Haggard was alive. We were going to a Merle Haggard concert so that we could get him to skull. We had this series where we were getting people to drink shots of uh, Aquavit, and we were taking pictures of them uh, you know, before, during, and after. Which, you know, someday maybe we'll start again. I don't know. Who knows? Anyways, so we're there and, uh, you know, we go to the, we go to the restaurant and uh, after the meal, uh, Daniel comes up to me. He's like, uh, so uh, how'd you like it? He's like, oh, I, th- I really enjoyed it, which I did. We had a great meal. And, hey, well, first of all, he was standing. Remember, he was standing. We scold him and he was standing because, remember, it was right next to a strip club and there mm-hmm. was that painting of the strip stuff outside. Anyway, so... He, then he asked me how my meal was last time I was there, which had been like maybe two or three years prior, and was super angry at me that I didn't think that the first meal I had there was absolute garbage compared to <laughs> the current meal I'd had because, because, and this is super interesting, he had learned so much more in life over those intervening like two to three years and was mad at me at not being able to discern immediately the extra kind of knowledge and it just goes to show kind of like a, a person who's always kind of thinking about what they do. Now, uh, they, the reason they're here, uh, not just because you know, they want to be here, but they're on a, a, a book tour. They just released uh, a new book called uh, Art of Flavor, right? Yes. It's with uh, Riverside, which is... Riverhead. Riverhead. <laughs> head. Should have written it on a file card for me. Riverhead, which I can only remember as being, apparently, I've been told, the greatest of all the Penguin imprints. Like, Penguin classics are, are useless, like piles of garbage, or as Nastasi would say, paperweights and or things to separate. You know, the only thing Nastasi used is my book for is to separate hot foods from cold foods when she's going to uh, potlucks. It's the exact... Well, that's smart. Yeah, it's the exact correct insulator <laughs> thickness and fitting into a tote bag to separate, you know, like a McDLT style hot from cold. So, um, yeah, so maybe other Penguin books can be that, but this, this imprint, not like that. This so, imprint is great. Yeah. That's all. So this is not the first collaboration you guys have had, right? This is our second book together. Okay, and the first one? Aroma. Which was what? Uh, we did that for, with Artisan, and it was about the... It, it had real... Um, it had essential oils as components of recipes for food and for, like, personal care and fragrance things. This book is completely different. Right, and, and both of you, you know, aside from when you're writing together, write apart, like, you know... Um, Obviously, Dan, you have books, but also you write for, like, you've written for the New York Times Magazine, right? And, uh, uh, you know, do you do, like, straight-up West Coast writing, too? Or, like, I, I read you in the New York Times, but do you do all those, like, evil papers out there on your side <laughs> of the... <laughs> they don't want me. No? no? Well, well, you've always had kind of this, like, weird relationship with San Francisco, right? I mean, like, it's kind of, it is your town, but I don't know. You Like, I don't, I don't, you've never said it to me, but it always seems that you are bucking whatever trend happens to be current there at that time, right? It's like you're kind of a, no? A little bit different, like a little bit. I don't know, man. I think you had it right the first time. A little more difficult. (laughs) Right? You could have stopped this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been right. All right. So, now, uh, when you guys are writing together, how does it, how does it, uh, how does that work? Do you, like, parcel it out into pieces? Do you lump it all together? Are you like, I'll take this chapter, I'll take this chapter? Like, how does it, how does that work? So the way the book started was um, I was at Mandy's studio, and we are talking, and she was actually talking about her creative process when she puts together a, a perfume, and it was just very much like, like how I think about putting together a dish. And so, and he said, well, you know, we should write a book about that. You know, like we wrote about aroma, we should write about flavor. And I thought to myself, 
yeah, let's do it. How hard can it be? <laughs> and that was three years ago. Yeah. No, writing is hard. It sucks. I hate it. Do you like it? I know you do it. Do you like it? No. No, it's terrible. What about you, man? Do you like it? No. But one thing, one thing I was going to say was Daniel and I did really spend, like, once a week, every week, going over. We did do the writing together. There are areas that are much more Daniel's than mine in the book that are, are his, like complete chapters. I don't think I had much input in a few things, and a few, a few for me as well. But the bulk of the whole book is this combined mind that we had together, finishing each other's sentences. You know, he was really there with me together, the two of us. It was very exhilarating and exciting. See, that sounds like an utter and complete nightmare to me. It was good. <laughs> like, it was good. So, so here's what's awesome, is that I learned so much in this process. Like, I could have never written this book myself, right? So I thought I knew about flavor, and I did intuitively. And uh, we got this great quote from Jacques Pepin about how it was like, was it the Cartesian theory behind all of his intuitive process which like was kind of how I felt and and once you start unpacking like the process of how you think about what you put together right so like carrots and orange they go together everyone knows that but no one ever tells you why they go together and so that was really what the book was about was like a million books can tell you what to put together but but you know for, especially for the home cook it's kind of mysterious right so so the process by which we we found our way through the book was as much as anything else, not a writing thing, but a structural thing. How do you take something so non-linear and make it in linear, which is what a book is. You read one chapter, another chapter, another chapter. And the process was that, um, you know, we would, Mandy would lend a lot of her language that she had developed for perfume in terms of locking and burying. So when two flavors join together to create something that's new or burying where something is very, very strong, and you have to push it down so it doesn't dominate, like like rosemary or, or anchovies or something like that. How, how to think about what the next process is. And what I realize as a cook, and you can probably relate to this, a lot of the decisions we make are compound decisions. So one of the things I realized early on is that a cook does something. It seems like you do one thing. You're actually deciding like three or four things at once. What's the cooking process? What are you adding? Uh, and, and then what what is the herb that's going to come later? And all of this stuff kind of becomes one. And so what working with Mandy really helped me with was teasing this out to be able to see with some kind of clarity all of the different steps that happen along the way. Well, so to that point, you know, you, you know, I've heard Mandy talk many times about kind of the structure of like a perfume, breaking it down into, and I, I wrote it in my magical book so I wouldn't have to do it from memory, uh, top, middle, and kind of base notes, yeah. right? Uh, and then what was interesting is seeing that translated into kind of a cook's flavor thing. And it didn't actually necessarily get translated 100% the way I thought it was going to get translated. So, it, you know, it, it, it's yeah, interesting. either. Well, it really is. So it's interesting to me. So you, I don't know if you want to spend a minute talking about it in terms of perfume and then how, like, that rubric then was applied in the book to food. I will. I will. I just want to make one comment on Daniel's comment first. Which is, I, I was kind of more the research person about, you know, researching flavor and thinking about flavor. And I thought for a while, in fact, I asked Harold, you know, can you just tell me where I can find, like, you know, how people thought about flavor, how people put things together, how, what were the, uh, the ways they were thinking about creating flavor. I, I was shocked at how little there was. There was a lot historically about what people use, but not about the thinking, you know, because the creation of flavor is stuff that's moving and dynamic. It's not static. You can't just 
when you put this with this and you have that, which reminded me so much of perfume. So in perfume, we talk about top, middle, and bass notes. And so top notes are things that reach your sense of smell very quickly and disappear quickly. They're often kind of sharp in their smell. And then middle notes have kind of usually more layers to them, and they bridge that distance between the top notes, which reach your sense of smell quickly and disappear, and last kind of longer. Then there's bass notes that are usually deep and rich and heavy and come from like roots and barks and heavier things. And so when you're thinking about smells, you're thinking about that kind of shape and dynamic and what they do to each other as they're evolving. So where we came to with, we applied some of that to food, which I think is one of the more abstract ideas in the book. I think like bearing and locking and stuff are easier to get your head behind. But you should say the four rules. I think you should, because that plays upon. <laughs> well, but even before we get to the four rules, which we, yeah, obviously need to get to. So, like, it's so on a perfume, you know, you have these. How do you contrast, like, a bass note, like you say, bark, with more of uh, whatever you call them, fixatives, or uh, what do you. They are. The, the bass notes are the fixatives. So, bass notes are the things that last the longest and they make the perfume stay the longest, they're the heaviest. Molecules, But on the food side, it translates into the more, I don't want to say bland, but kind of like the more overridden notes. So when you transfer it from a perfume where it's literally the, the thing it's holding, literally, by the way, apparently, according to McGee, I was talking to him, holding the high notes down. You know what yes. I mean? So that they stay there longer. Yes, yes. Um, by the way, whenever she says Harold, it's our good friend Harold McGee. I assume, unless there's another. There is, there is only one yeah. Harold. He's like he's like the Madonna of the food world. It's Harold. So the um, mine too. So the um, so in like uh, in a food context, Daniel, you're talking more like the beans side of the equation. So like that seems to me to be an interesting an interesting shift going from the one regime to the other. Yeah. So one way to think about it. So I did a couple of um, braised chicken recipes. So the chicken would be, because one of the things about the book, there's no luxury ingredients. It's all the stuff you can get at the supermarket. We really wanted this to be a book. There's like 80, 85 recipes. They're all easy. Because I think that's really important, is if you're going to show something, you know, you got to show it in a way that people can actually do it, right? So braised chicken, all based on, you know, basically water, onion, water, uh, you know. But then there's a middle note. So it could be, um, for example... uh, uh, orange, saffron, and then a top note, which could be tarragon, right? So that is a top middle base where you have your your depth, you know, the thing holding it down, which is the, the, the stew and the, all those things locking together. You have this middle note, which connects with like maybe a little bit of anise flavors, a little bit of orange, and then the, the sharp tarragon at the top, which kind of lifts it up. But it could also be with carrots as your base, right? And then you need a middle that maybe is miso and maybe a top that's like uh, like cilantro or something. So it's relative, right? So if you think about playing a piano, uh, anything, right, uh, a musical instrument, you could have a chord where the, the C is very high or very low, but the, re- the relationship between top, middle, and bass is what's important and not a, a, a static bass always has to be this. Right. So conceptually, like going to beans for a second, like if you're going to go like Mexican, you're going to have like, uh, you know, certain ones, like you're going to have like Oja Santa or something inside the beans. An herb like that, although it's very on its own, I mean, and even if if you know it's there, it's very itself. You know what I mean? Um, Yet it 
it seems to me to be part of the baseness of the bean. So it's like, so mentally, even though something, I guess what I'm trying to get to is when you're thinking about it, it seems like it's not just, oh, the, like the herb is going to function as a top note in this case, because some herbs can be part of the base aspect of it too, right? So, so that, what you're talking about is this kind of magical transformative ability that's like kind of at the heart of of the, the transformative effect of, of cooking, which is that some things bind. And so this is a big thing that, um, and, and many can probably speak to this more because she was more versed in it uh, than I am, but each, every plant, I mean all things, but especially plants which have hundreds of aromatic molecules, um, they, like, we, we call it nature's original flavorist. So the way that, if you look at the composition of an herb, is put together, there'll be two, three things at the top, aromatic molecules that are dominant with a ton of other stuff. But it could be something way, way down that's 0.005% that makes, you know, an herb what it is. And it could be that herbs share similar top two or three, but then slightly different ratios. So how you mix things together and how they bind together makes things what they are. So that's just within one ingredient. So each ingredient contains a multitude. So the way we describe it is facets, right? So you have a predominant flavor, but then you have these facets. They could be floral. They could be peppery. But in, in, in the case of the, the beans and the, um, the, uh, the herb, there's some uh, connection that happens with those facets that makes it bind together. Lock. So it, so it, yeah, so it, and, and, and we, which we call locking. So it sticks out a little bit on top, right? You can recognize it, but then something else kind of dovetails into the beans and makes something that wasn't there before. And that's kind of like how to anticipate that, how to build on it, and how to actually plan for it is one of the things that we tried to, to talk about in the book. Nice. Uh, by the way, call your all of your flavor-related questions in too. Seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. So, do you want to talk about the four rules? Yeah, we actually now? got a. Oh, we got a caller. Caller, yeah. All right, caller, you're on the air. Daniel. Caller. Hello. Still alive? Me. Yellow. There, there. Well, we got another one. All right, caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Dave. Yes. Hey, what's up, Dave? I'm uh, Sage from Philadelphia. How are you guys doing today? All right. How you doing? I'm all right. Um, I'm a I'm a 20 year old line chef, and uh, I was just wondering if you guys had any suggestions on uh, where, what like food cities I should move to because I'm kind of stuck in a rut where I am, trying to break out of my learn and move to uh, accept any suggestions. Well, so let me first some caveats. Are you, do you want to stay in the United States of America or no? Doesn't matter. All right. Well, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Daniel. First of all, like I like I have lived in New York since like forever, so I'm a huge New York guy. So I'm gonna step away from my New York microphone here for a minute. I'm gonna let Daniel take this. <laughs> so, so you're in Philadelphia now. Is that what right? Was that? You're in Philadelphia now. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So my personal opinion is that there's good food everywhere. I, I, from what I, Philadelphia has a great scene and a lot going on. So one thing I would say is, or wonder, is how deeply you explored, you know, your own environment. Because I think a lot of people are doing a lot of different kinds of things, not necessarily the things you might see in magazines and stuff like that, but there's a lot going on. And then beyond that, uh, I think everywhere has something to offer. It's more like um, 
the culture that you want to live with and the kind of people you want to be around and the kind of people you want to cook for. So those are the things that I, I would think about. But no matter where you go, like food is about people. And, and so however you connect to people, that's, that's like the most important thing. Do you like going to a place that has like major like? In other words, so there's obviously places that are known for having a boat ton of people who are working hard in the in the food industry, right? Like New York, San Francisco, this kind of stuff. You have places that are known for good ingredients. You have places that are known for one particular like style of uh, you know one particular style of food or one one particular kind of um, restaurant tour. You think, yeah, yeah. I think it's like you're the kind of guy, Daniel. That's more like it's it's like I, like you almost prefer a constraint, right? I mean, like it's it's like, it's like he'd you know rather be like you only have this stick and this fire. Let's see what you can do with it. And so I think what he's saying is it's almost like your your location is kind of like that. Like your where you are is kind of like that. Now, I will say though that I think it's extremely helpful. Not that I get to do it that often, but to travel around and taste a lot of food, go to a lot of places, especially you know if you come from a, a, like an Eastern Seaboard kind of reality where you you tend to believe that kind of all there is is kind of what you see in life it's a huge advantage to go like taste other people's stuff taste uh other people's um and it is helpful i think to look you know who who's the best at x y or z like i hate to say it like west coast is still the best coffee place if you're interested in like learning about what's fresh and going on not fresh but you know in coffee did you say it's the best coffee and food place no best coffee best place to go to learn about coffee i would say it's still the west coast (laughs) Uh, well, the best I, don't ingredients, I don't know. The, the best, best place to learn about citrus is definitely <laughs> in uh, right now, I think, probably in California. Um, but I think it's like if you want to go to a particular restaurant, like I had a guy I used to work with that went out to California to work for you. You know what I mean? Like uh, Nguyen, Mikey Nguyen, oh, yeah. you know, years ago. And um, I think like it is useful to find someone that you think is interesting and go to work for that particular person rather than working for a particular place because I think you can learn a lot about, you know, even in, you know, I mean, I guess the chef and you probably says that, you know, how long do you want someone to devote to you? Like a year at least? Yeah. And, you know, but, but like I, I got out of this day-to-day chef thing a couple of years ago. And so maybe my opinions have changed a little bit, but I think the, the most important thing is whatever you do, commit yourself to it a hundred percent. And it's not about a, mm-hmm. a time. It's about like, are you going to open your heart to this? Are you going to, are you going to listen? Are you going to contribute? Are you going to learn? Because if you do, naturally you'll stay there a long time. Right. I think, what do you think about when you get somewhere and you realize that whoever you're working with, you don't respect them anymore? Just get out right now or stick with it? Oh yeah. Be honest and, and, and be polite and just say, this isn't the place for me. Give a proper notice. Move on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not necessarily it's not necessarily bad to cut and run. It's bad to cut and run if you're doing it just because you're lazy, or uh, right. I mean, that's the main thing. Like, no, no, actually, if you're lazy, we definitely want you to, <laughs> want you to cut and run. <laughs> I, can, I can see that one coming. Oh man, it's hilarious. Hey, hey can um, I ask the caller a question? Oh, should I? Could, can I? Can I ask the caller a question? Yeah, that's sure. that's Dave. That's Dave in the booth asking you. Hey, caller, what's your favorite pho place in Philly? Still alive? I don't think so. I think we lost him. All right, cool. Never mind. All right, so let's go to, uh, well, if we have another caller, they put him on. But, like, while we're doing nope, that. not yet. Oh. Can I do these? Oh, yeah, I want you to tell people what you're doing. Yeah. So when Daniel talked about nature being the original flavorist, I have these little examples for it for you guys, and then you can, you know, discuss them on the air. So 
inside of every, we have this thing in the book called the flavor compass, which is really part of my world, which is the aroma, essential oil rich ingredients that people use for cooking that don't really take up a lot of real estate on the plate, but are incredibly important for flavor. So those are the flowers, the herbs, the citrus, and the spices. And people usually turn to those and think of those as something that's really going to create flavor. And I think they often think of them with a very broad brush and a kind of interchangeability. So we made this flavor compass to kind of really delineate the differences in flavors between things that are very near each other, like the differences between the herbs. Because one of the things I would found in perfume is really picking the specific thing you want, like lemon over lime or or basil over tarragon, and then taking that basil and putting it together with another flavor and thinking very creatively about it can completely change what you're doing. Not just any citrus, not just any spice. And also, a lot of the spices that make it to the market are depleted of their essential oils. So I'm always very, very keen on telling people to stick their fingers in them and see if their finger smells, like stick their, if they can touch them and, and smell the ingredient, how important that is. And so in nature... You just grossed Nastasia out, by the way. <laughs> no. And so, well, if you have a clove, I think it's like important to make sure it smells like a clove. Um, so one of the one of the things that I brought for y'all to smell is is just within just within one species, like basil, of which there are many different kinds of basil. It, certain ones are much more spicy, and certain ones are much more floral. So sweet basil, which is what most people think of all the time and they use, is has a very large amount of an aroma molecule called linalool. And linalool is kind of, I don't know if Harold's talked to you about linalool, but it's very important to him. Linalool is the floral aroma that's in so many herbs. So a lot of times if you're using an herb or an herb has gone to flower, the linalool in there is making it much more floral. So in a certain way, you're already using florals. On the other hand, Thai basil has a lot of eugenol, which is the main aroma molecule in cloves. So I just wanted you to, if you can, just to smell the difference and smell the difference between the two basils, but then about their operating facet, which is what we call it, which would then lock with something else and make your dish more spicy or more floral. So, so Although your sweet basil has a huge anise hit like Thai does. Like this they has always that, do. They always have anise in them, though. But, yeah, but like globe, the standard globe does not have nearly this much of an anise hit, at least when you're using it as a fresh leaf. Yes, that's a much more anise one. That is a much more anise Which is one. why it's so good in drinks. <laughs> all right. <laughs> that's so a very... From, from a practical standpoint, I mean, because all this stuff, you know, that's it's very esoteric and you're talking about aroma molecules, but the reality is that, um, you know, if you know that something has more of a floral component, let's say, say you're doing something with Meyer lemon and you want to do something with basil, you're going to pick the basil that has more of a floral component that will lock with the, the floral of the Meyer lemon. Or... Maybe you have something like really sweet and flat, like orange. You might want to take something spicier. So knowing those kind of um, components allow for either kind of something that's consonant or something that's uh, kind of different, but either way you're doing it consciously. And so knowing a little bit how things are put together, you know, kind of let you also with substitutes. Like what's the worst question you ever get when you're writing a recipe? What can I substitute for that? Well, you can substitute this recipe for another recipe. <laughs> yeah. But but I think I think but, I think those, I'm going to use that from now on. Can I use that as long as I credit you? Yeah. That's the that's now the Daniel Patterson substitution. You can you may substitute a different recipe. I think the whole idea of, of thinking about 
ingredients is having facets and thinking about those facets as locking together is what creates flavor. And just having that key, just having that tool and thinking that way will impact the whole way you think about cooking and the whole way you think about creating flavor. So let me go to your compass for a minute because it's interesting. It's also interesting kind of what you chose because it is part of a specific structure. So like I always think about like what a, what a cook's toolkit is. Like where are they, where are they going? Where's their head at? Like what are they what are they reaching for, right? Yes. Cuz there's whole groups of people that don't really cook with citrus at all, right? Now they got it they unless their food sucks, they have to have some sort of something to brighten it up. But it's interesting that like and I, you know, like you guys, like I'm reaching for the citrus because I'm, you know, I have access to it all year round now and like it's there even though I live in New York and not in California. Uh, by the way, uh, the citrus in California is re- freaking ridiculous, especially the peels, the citrus peels in California are preposterously good. So like the fruit, like, you know, like if you like, the fr- it's okay. You know what I mean? Like, like if you're going to get like a pomelo or something like that. Yeah. Okay. It's like all pith, but like the peels out of California are just freaking gorgeous and smell amazing. You know, you know, the peels are where all the oils are. If you stick your finger in, I'm always talking about. Put, I mean, I'd be banned <laughs> in grocery stores. I mean, if I ever was, like, really successful, they'd see me coming. They'd, like, say, put up, like, garlic. But if you stick your finger into the peel of any citrus, you will have the oil right on your fingers, whereas the juice is different. It has some, but not like the peels. Yeah. So, by the way, my grandma used to get the chocolate sample boxes, and she would push her freaking thumb through the bottom of every Love her. freaking Love her. candy. <laughs> Love the, me it? too, me too, <laughs> me too to find the good ones. <laughs> is there such a thing though? They're all filled with good. Okay, yeah, no, we, yes, there is. But but with chocolate, I don't understand. Like, what's it going to do? Release the aroma? No, you box? get to find out how hard it is. I, I've done this. I am like this. <laughs> you get to find out what's inside without having to go through the top, and then you can just quietly put it back. Yeah. So like, you would you? I would go and I would turn everyone over. I'm like, Grandma. <laughs> like you know what I mean? It's like. It was, Anyway, wait, uh, Dave, you saying we got someone? Yeah, you want to take a quick break and then we'll take a call? <laughs> all right. Or you want to take the caller first since they're on the freaking line? Yeah, all right, fine. All right, caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hi. I am calling about a question for a wedding. Ooh. I am calling because I have the great idea, my partner disagrees, to have a punch bowl of orbits at our wedding. And since orbits stopped existing about 20 years ago, how do I make my own? Okay, the very first thing I would do is do exactly what the person you're getting married to says to do. <laughs> Regarding your punch bowl. That's the very first. All right. Uh, Orbitz, uh, the, the recipe, it, I, I don't remember whether Kaimos uh, published, uh, Martin Lairs published the recipe for Orbitz, but C.P. Kelko, who makes Jell-An, Orbitz is a Jell-An trick, uh, C.P. Kelko uh, released the recipe uh, a, n- um, a number of times. What it is 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 the, the balls are Jell-An balls, uh, prim- primarily low-acyl Jell-An balls that are suspended in a very light Jell-An fluid gel. And the trick of it is this. The density, first of all, the balls need to be small. Uh, and you can set Jell-An into very small balls, just like you would drop agar, presuming you have a, uh, a good enough sequestrant so that, and, and you make the base so that you don't have 
kind of any kind of free uh, calcium in your liquid at all. You can make a straight gelan ball, much like you'd make an uh, uh, an alginate ball if you wanted to make those things, which I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then mm-hmm. uh, the the major 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 trick here is one you're going to want to store those balls in colored fluid until just before the uh of the same relatively isotonic fluid uh, up, right up until right beforehand and then rinse them off so they don't bleed into your liquid and the other thing is mm-hmm. the density of the balls has to almost exactly match the density of the uh, fluid gel. I don't mean the thickness. Everyone always gets this wrong. Dan, you notice this? Everyone always mis, mis, uh, you know, misconstrues density and texture as the same thing. Density is just weight for volume. Texture is how thick something is. So um, you need almost exactly the same density. So same sugar levels, same everything in order for it to get it to float. The problem with it uh, uh, is... Um, that if you're just picking up with a with a with it, you can get it to suspend. It's not a problem. But it, the the surface of orbits. So when you drank orbits, you probably drank it out of a bottle, and so you never saw the surface of it in a nice big glass coming up. But it's got a Santa Claus jiggling bowl full of jelly belly kind of a situation going on on the surface. Right. And it's right. impossible to not have that. They also dope it with a slight slight bit of xanthan so it's a slight bit of xanthan and and gelan but if if your spouse to be does not mm. wish you to do this don't do it because it's just a nightmare you know when you should do it you should do it on your first anniversary i think i think i can i think i can get away with this one all right we'll see. all right man i'm pushing for it i'm just saying look i've been married i've been married 22 years now and like most times that I've said I'm just going to do it, I regret it. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. And you know what I mean? Most of the times when I'm like, I realize that I should not do this. This is not even just in marriage. It's just in life in general. Most of the time when, I'm, when I know beforehand that it's going to cause problems and I do it anyway – like sometimes I'm like, no, this is going to be great, and then like I do it, and like I was like, see, that was great. But most of the time, I'm like, man, they were right. I was, I should not have done that. All right. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for the answer. Um, and um, I have one more small confirmation of something uh-huh. I can ask. Chocolate bars better out of the freezer. Uh, what do you mean? Like, like what? Well. Chocolate bars are best stored in a low in a low humidity cool environment because uh, the thing is when you freeze a chocolate bar it's going to get a lot of condensation on it as it comes up to unless it's like vacuum wrapped or something like this I don't really know do you guys know how, the effect how do chocolate bars last long enough to need what, a why aren't you eating them household? sooner well maybe he's get his, has a specific one he wants to keep it for the wedding like maybe he was gifted some like unique chocolate bar and he wants to save it for the wedding wine backpack wine cellar It'll be fine. There you go. Backpack, right, cellar. Just don't let it go through a lot of temperature fluctuations so it blooms out. Mm. That's it. All righty. Same, same thing, by the way, mm. coffee. Coffee in and out of the freezer. Highly problematic. Highly problematic. Open it, vacuum it once. Well, you just use it right away. Roast it, use it right away. That's, that's the correct answer. All right, so, You want to cut to a quick break? Okay. Bills. Bills. Coming right back with some cooking issues. is the founder of Bob's Red Mill, the top quality supplier of grains, flowers, and general nutritional goodness from Oregon. He's talking to us about their signature millstones, a very specific way of making whole grain flour. So what's the secret, Bob? Follow me to the mill room. 
Well, these are just like the millstones that the Romans used to grind their grains. In fact, these stones came from the same quarry near Paris, France, where the Romans got their stones. The company that makes our millstones pulls their quartz from the same quarry, and they make mills for us that are just wonderful. Bob explains how the millstones grind much slower and at cooler temperatures than modern steel rollers. The process keeps the grains cool, preserving the flavor and nutrition. Look at what they produce. I love how they keep things simple and just right. All the nutrition is there, just like nature intended. After almost 40 years in the milling business, they're serving up over 400 organic, gluten-free, and whole grain foods right here from the mill in Oregon, sending them off to destinations around the world. We think we can make a difference by sticking to the traditional way of stone milling. And so, that's what we're doing. To learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their mission to bring good food for all, visit bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And we are back with Mandy Aftel and uh, Daniel Patterson. By the way, Daniel, what's the name of that author who writes a million books that has a similar name that writes, like, novels? What's that? There's a Patterson that writes, like, a boat ton of novels. James? James Patterson? You ever get confused for him? <laughs> no. No? They're just, like, famous Arnolds, but they don't do anything. They don't write. Any, they're, like, you know, famous musicians. Do you anyway. get confused for Tom Arnold? Ever? <laughs> yes, all the time. Cool. Um, I wish. That would mean that I was uh, confused for anyone. You know what I mean? That would mean that somebody cared. So, uh, so I want to hit like a aww. Cu- uh, aww, pity party, aww, little violins. All right, so uh, nice. So, um, all right, so we're gonna get back uh, into uh, kind of the you know, the flow of the book in in a minute. But I want to a couple of things. One, I want to talk about the flavor industry a little bit because I know there's some serious issues here. Mandy especially has some bones to pick with them, and so we'll, we'll get into it. Uh, but one is a recipe that just jumped out at me so hard that I have to talk up to ask and talk about it, and it's carrots and coffee. It's, um, so it's very rare that you see a recipe where you're like, what? You know what I mean? You're like, what'd they do? And then you're like, you, like, you have to go and you have to look at it. So I'll, I'll set it up. Right, so you get uh, you turn on your oven to 350, right? You um, wash, but do not peel your carrots. Correct? Do you dry them? No, it doesn't matter. Do you oil them? Oil them, right? Uh, Salt them. Now here's you put it into a baking dish, but before you put it into the baking dish, you line the bottom of the baking dish with whole roasted coffee beans. You then cover the dish so it's sealed in effect, which means that presumably as you roast for the next at 350 degrees for the next 45 minutes to an hour or something like that, they're not going to get too they're not going to get too dark. They're not going to lose that much moisture because they're sealed in, right? So, uh, so this, this just struck me as like the craziest. Like, like, not crazy, but just like I haven't seen this before. So, why don't you talk about this recipe? Where, like, did you did it come from the restaurant? Is it something you guys discussed? What what is that? Tim, so that recipe um, that was a fun one. Uh, I was actually cooking with uh, Rene Recipe from Noma Restaurant. It was at my house. It was for a magazine article in 2011. And there, we we did like I don't know 15, 18 recipes over two days together and. And at one point, 
uh, we'd bought a squash, right, a winter squash, a small like turban squash or something, and, and Renee had it in his hand, and I was at the coffee machine because we were both drinking coffee constantly. And, and, and so I was grinding coffee, and he looks at me, he's like, what do we do with this? And I don't know, I just looked at the coffee, and I looked at and I said, well, coffee? And, he, and then he said, why don't we bury it in coffee beans? And so we did, and it was pretty magical, the way that the coffee infused into the squash. So then I took that back and started roasting. I, I thought, well, how can I adapt this? And so uh, we did it with baby carrots. And, and, and then Renee went back to Noma, started burying things in, in spices. So the, the general idea of burying something and roasting it in an aromatic environment is, um, uh, is kind of magical because what happens over the time is that the, the, the softening of the fiber and the, and the steaming that happens creates this, um, this environment in which the carrot, which is kind of sweet and earthy, locks with the, the coffee, which is earthy and bitter, and it creates something that's neither carrot nor coffee. So these things happen all the time, but this particular one was just like crazy. That's, that's the definition of locking right there, which is where you put two things together, and you, very simple two things, and that their, their, their aroma and flavor locks together to create something that's just fantastic. It's very simple. You ever notice being a locking and steaming things together, that people, like a lot of times nowadays, omit the citrus, allium, herb inside of a chicken when they roast it, even though it perfumes the entire meat. You ever notice that people kind of like, I feel people have been skipping that recently. They don't put anything into the bird to let the aromas come through as they roast it. People are in a hurry, Dave. But doesn't it takes an extra like, like 30 seconds. (laughs) You go into your fridge, you're like, I have a, you know, a line, check, check, boom. No, it's a a different kind of coming together, that kind of locking. I agree with you. It's it's perfume. It's kind of like bleeds over into my area. It's perfume. So how much carry of the coffee into the uh, carrot is there? Like a lot? Yeah. So it's really interesting because literally, the the carrot and the coffee both lose their individual identity to become something else, right? So so the chicken that's stuffed with your your thyme and your, your, your citrus, what's gonna happen is you have a roasted chicken flavor that has this underlayer of this perfume of citrus and thyme. In this case, those two things merge completely and give up their individual identity to create a new identity. So that's something that's fundamentally different. And that's like- So more like cola. About, uh, yeah, exactly like cola. No. Yeah, cola is cola is yes, yes, exactly. Like, that's exactly right. Which was true in your fantastic exhibit, but that that's a thing that goes on in perfume. You know, a lot of times in perfume, there's this idea of you know, can you pick out the notes? And I think I've always thought that was kind of who cares. I think when something comes together, it becomes Shalimar. It becomes Chanel Number no. Five. Shalimar, it, what's up, seventies? <laughs> <laughs> or or it becomes this really fantastically flavored roast chicken. That's what happens when you create flavor, and that's a concept that the two of us put into the book to kind of be a guideline of something to think about. Nice. My mom used to use so, Shalimar. So tell me about the cola. So cola is, and I'm going to get this. it wrong, but like uh, one of the things we did at the museum, Which we worked with a flavor house, so we're going to have to get into Mandy going, going anti-flavor house in a minute, but it was... Uh, so uh, I forget which Not which nice. cinnamon relation it is. It's like, it's probably ca- cassia, like... But all and actual citrus. essential oils. I know. Like uh, lime oil, orange oil, 
cinnamon, and, van- and vanilla, right? right. Are, and there's other ones too, that, but those are the four bases. And you smell each one of them individually, and they don't, they don't actually smell like they're referent, because essential oils, we should probably also talk about, don't always smell like they're referent. That's true. You know what I mean? But uh, especially, I think, citrus oils don't smell 100% like they're referent, because they're not... They're not expressed right then. They must change or something. I don't know. Some are cold pressed, some are distilled. The cold pressed and distilled are different. The cold pressed smells more like the referent? It does. Yeah. And so the distilled are cooked. Right. So then but you press all four together and you're like, oh, cola. And it doesn't smell like any of the doesn't smell like any of the ones individually. And interesting there, they're all actual they're actual product. the ones we were using are actual products. They're not like uh, they're not synthetics? Not right, they're actual products. You know, Coke was also in Coke, as in cocaine, was the other one thing in there. Well, you know, when you get up and go, it's got up and went. You got yes. to have, you know. Uh, you know. When, when, did I, when, when, did the, when did the cocaine drop out of Coke? I don't remember, but it was a, quite, a, quite a while. But there's a lot. There's a lot. It was done in a pharmacy. Yeah, well, you know, it's it was like. It done a, in a pharmacy as originally. You, as you point out, a lot of these original things were kind of, uh, you know, medicinal. But a lot of that really only survives in the in the drink realm like a lot of yeah. the old like medicinal drinks which taste frankly horrible like yeah. are uh, you know are now revered or liked for their taste that's you know I was talking to people about things in general you learn to like what you like things that taste horrible the first time you taste them for some reason you learn to crave them I still haven't figured out I've talked to scientists about that who are like yes I have an explanation and I don't know whether it's because I've been drinking but I can never remember an explanation <laughs> that I can give to somebody else to say why things that are kind of uh, strictly speaking horrible like why we end up craving them so much yes. but, but that's different so that's how flavor connects to experience right so what you smell and taste connects to what you, you, you feel you know and remember so that's just kind of how we're hardwired right so that if you if if we get together once a week, and we have this great time. We eat something that's really not very good, but it's, it's surrounded by these feelings of, of love and contentment, right? Ten years from now, you might be looking back at that and saying, I love that dish. You don't really love that dish. What you really love is the, what it created, but then those two things merge over time. So, in fact, you actually do. Right, like, like Twinkies. Like, straight up, <laughs> they're not really well-made cakes, but I like them because... They are Twinkies. Yeah, I mean, think about like the the um, they did this great um, test back I don't know quite a while ago between wine, right? So you blind taste wine, and people say what they like and don't like, and then they do it again the next day where they can see the labels. And of course, they like it's like the Coke Pepsi thing, right? Of course, they change their their opinions. But what's really interesting about is they tracked brain activity, and so the part of the brain that that registers pleasure lit up with one wine when it was blind and lit up with the other wine when it was because of a brand. So it's not just because things taste good, it's because of all of this other stuff going on in our brains. But what we try to do in the book is to kind of take it out of the, the cultural and, and larger context and bring it down to like, what is flavor? How does it act? Because the other stuff, the cultural stuff and, and what you're talking about, man, there's a lot of books on that. You know, you know Dana Small out of uh, Yale? I used to talk to her. You guys should talk to her. You'd, you'd enjoy it. She does. She does a lot of like MRIs of people while they're tasting and eating and like seeing how that uh, affects what's going on. Inter- interesting stuff. For your next book, <laughs> should should you should you ever uh, choose to write another one? Um, all right. So 
I could go on forever for the stuff I read, but well, let's get to the, the part. So they got the four. What are the four main rules? That happens about midway in the book, right? The four okay. four main rules you have for working with, and yeah. they seem they they. I'm going to spoil a little bit. It's like a lot of yin and yang. It like, is. Don't go. It is. It yeah, is. which is how like life works. You're like, you know, don't go too much that way. Don't go too much that but, way. But you know, it's really interesting, right? So we. We reached a lot of these moments in the book where we're like, dead end, dead end. You know, we rewrote this thing so many times. Yes. Like, it's a miracle oh. it even got published. And there's one moment where we couldn't figure out this bridge between one place and another. So I went back and I looked at all my old recipes. I'm like, why did I do that? And, and those, basically everything I've ever done is one of those four things. Now, these are primary indicators of direction. They tell you generally where to go, but not specifically. So the 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 something like the um, flavor compass will tell you: should I pick lemon or lime? These tell you I need to brighten it. So the the idea. So the rule number one is: if things are close together, let's say potato and leek, that's kind of that's comforting. It's wonderful. It's kind of boring. So they need something to to spark them. Something that's different. Counterpoint. It needs a counterpoint. Black olive anchovy whatever so i'll give i'll give the four rules here similar things need contrasting elements that's one and since i already said that spoils going to balance contrasting elements need unifiers need a bridge between right? them heavy things need a lift and light things no n- no he- oh, heavy you mean heavy heavy, heavy. yeah heavy yeah. heavy <laughs> things need a lift yes. and and, and light me. things need to be grounded those yes. are the four the yes. four main rules that's that's it but you know what's interesting is that like a, a lot of times where this hits me is like so I know, for those of you that have never I don't know had to write a recipe or come up with something specifically for an event like literally typically you have like a set of parameters what you're working with and you think out the dish first and then you mentally think about this stuff ahead of time but what's interesting is a lot of these rules are applied after you do your primary mental work. So you're doing your primary mental work. Exactly. You have the main structure. You're like, ba ba ba. You're like, ah, that needs some zest. Raw onions on top. Ah, uh, that needs ba. Hit it with some zest. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, this. Hit it with some cream to bind that sucker together and drop it down. But like, don't you find that a lot of those rules, like almost always, you're applying that after you've already gone through your main mental structure of figuring out what's going to happen, or no? I mean, like you you think about them all the way. You never want to go out of balance while you're cooking, but it's always at the end. I find that you correct in things like that. I have a, I have, a, I have an answer. I mean, because I just taught perfume this weekend, and I applied the four rules right while I was teaching. I think it doesn't happen at the beginning, but I don't think it happens at the end. I think it happens midstream. So I think you start in. And that's what we were really trying to do was stop the dance. If you think that f- making flavor is a dynamic that's taking place, no one stops stops it, stops the motion to think about it in the middle of it. They just get to the end. I think that happens earlier on where you're starting in with the potatoes and the leeks. You've got that, so that's a, maybe ahead of it. And then you think, what am I going to do with this? But you're not totally at the end yet either. So it's kind of stopping that thought process long enough to be able to have something to hold on to and think about, particularly if you're like standing in a farmer's market, standing in a grocery store and thinking, okay, I like this and I like this, but what am I going to do with it? You haven't started cooking, but you're cooking in your head. So, so Dave, let's, let's cook a dish right now. Okay. G- give me one ingredient. Nastasia, pick an ingredient. I don't know. Pick an ingredient. Squash. Okay. 
All right. What kind of squash? Go, Dave. Come what on. kind of squash? Like like a freaking zucchini or like a freaking <laughs> butternut squash? Like what kind of freaking squash? One is garbage and one is good. Are you giving me the garbage? garbage one. How about uh, that? zucchini? Oh Jesus! All right, Daniel. Now what are we gonna do with this piece of garbage? <laughs> okay. So you gave me zucchini. Wait, I'm, what I'm, the zucchini? <laughs> yeah, zucchini is garbage unless you're making bread out of it. I'm gi- I'm giving you back uh, bacon. Oh, you give me a del- so delicious. So now now what? Wait. So we're, we're gonna use zucchini and bacon together. In I got dish? two minutes, Dave. What? <laughs> look, uh, at your, look at your watch. Uh, oh, I don't have a watch. Someone turned the clock away from me, Dave. Uh, wait. So zucchini and, and bacon. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna blend all this crap into a soup. I'm gonna cook onions. I'm gonna make it into a soup. Another... There you go. And then, but then you've you've created this thing, and then you're thinking about cooking, right? So you're like, wow, the zucchini really doesn't taste like much. So I got to take some of the water out of it. So I'm gonna roast it over high heat, right, before it goes into the soup, and then I'm gonna think about flavoring that liquid, right? So I'm going to take onion and bacon, cook it together, add maybe a little white wine, maybe water, and then I'm going to put this concentrated zucchini in, right? So then you get to the end, you have something that has a little more power, but it's kind of dark and deep, right? So it needs something brightening. So you're going to do lemon zest. Maybe you're going to say, I'm going to take raw zucchini. I'm going to mix it with, you know, uh, black olive lemon and, uh, and, and, and then a shitload of herbs. And I'm going to drop that in the middle. And then I think I want a little bit of lactic something, right? So a little creme fraiche around it. There I have a dish. And so that's really... Do you add a crunchy element? I always like a crunchy element on the top of my soup. Oh, yeah. But I mean, I think the the, the Wait, um, how about the some raw... bake a bit? I don't know. It's already... Gotta wrap up in a minute. Oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so the whole section of the book we haven't talked about, and that's like where you get to the synthesizer section of it or the mixing board section and we of it. skipped the flavor Synthesizer? flavor industry too <laughs> well and, well, well we'll talk about it again today but uh, i should also mention that uh, in a perfumer's art like they have what is the, it's it's they use the language of music it's called an organ right yes where it you is. Ke- keep all of your sense so why don't you talk about that kind of like final synthesis of the of the book at the end of, of like operational well, the seven dials do, do the seven dials in one minute sweet sour salt <laughs> bitter add umami add fat and add spice like as in chili heat, right? So when you get to the end, the dish is almost done, but it's like a song that hasn't been mixed down. A little bit of salt, a little bit of lemon. Uh, maybe you need some fat to round something out. And this is also how you fix things. You get to the end and it's a little bitter, it's a little sweet. This is how you bring it into your own language, into your own style. And so the last chapter in the book is about how to use these things and how they interact with each other, that salt pulls up acidity, pushes down sweet, all of that kind of stuff. So that last chapter is like, A, how do you perfect things? And B, how do you save things? Because that's really most of what a cook does. So what's the most unsavable thing? If you burn the gravy. And that's where we learn about about burying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so listen, we didn't get to have our knockdown drag out fight about the flavor industry next time. (laughs) Uh, But thanks, Mandy and Daniel, for coming on. The book is The Art of Flavor. It's put out by River Head Head (laughs) Press, the the greatest of all penguin imprints. Thanks for coming, guys. Uh, See you next time on Cooking Issues. Thanks for having us. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.